Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our February 2017 issue. This month, we feature several articles from our early career psychiatrist special section. You'll hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Narcolepsy is a disabling sleep disorder that often goes undiagnosed, sometimes for years. Many narcolepsy symptoms can mimic psychiatric conditions or be mistakenly attributed to side effects of psychiatric medication. Prior research investigating associations between narcolepsy and psychiatric comorbidity have been inconclusive, and there have been no studies in a large U.S. population until now. The recent Burden of Narcolepsy Disease Study, also known as the BOND study, sponsored by Jazz Pharmaceuticals, used claims data from the Truven Market Scan Research Databases to identify more than 9,000 persons with a narcolepsy diagnosis. Insurance claims with coding for psychiatric comorbidities and psychiatric medications were analyzed over a five-year period for this cohort and compared with a matched control group of more than 46,000 individuals without a narcolepsy diagnosis. The data showed that nearly all categories of mental illness were significantly more prevalent in the patients with narcolepsy compared with the non-narcolepsy controls. Anxiety and mood disorders showed the highest excess prevalence in the narcolepsy population, most notably among young adults between the ages of 18 and 24 years. The relationship between narcolepsy and psychiatric illness is no doubt a complex one with a broad range of overlapping symptomatology. However, seeking an accurate diagnosis can considerably advance treatment outcomes. Patients with unrecognized narcolepsy often respond poorly to psychiatric treatment unless the underlying narcolepsy is identified and addressed. The authors recommend that workups for patients with psychiatric symptoms include the consideration of narcolepsy, particularly in patients complaining of fatigue or daytime sleepiness, and for those who seem to respond poorly to standard treatment. In most areas of medicine, outcome is determined in part on the change of a numerical value. Body temperature, blood pressure, cholesterol values, and blood sugar levels are examples of quantifiable variables that are used to evaluate medical treatment progress. This measurement-based approach towards evaluating outcome is generally not used in psychiatry. Experts in the treatment of depression, however, have recommended that self-report scales be used in routine clinical practice to measure outcome. They also have emphasized the importance of striving for remission when treating depression. In this month's CME offering, Zimmerman and colleagues from the Rhode Island Methods to Improve Diagnostic Assessment and Services Project compared three self-report depression scales in the identification of remission in patients treated in routine practice. 153 depressed outpatients completed three self-report depression scales and were rated on the 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. The results showed remission rates among the scales as ranging from 23 to 47 percent, more than a twofold difference. 
The authors found it disconcerting to find such large differences between scales that presumably measured the same thing. The most likely cause of this difference, they note, is the different methods used by the scale developers in deriving cutoff scores to define remission. Unlike instruments that measure body temperature or blood pressure, which use the same metric, the scores on depression scales are not calibrated similarly, and the thresholds to determine remission on these scales have been derived in different ways. The authors conclude that while remission is the desired goal in the treatment of depression, how to determine remission status is not settled. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Lithium is one of the most widely used medications for treating bipolar disorder. Because it acts on the central nervous system, neurological influence from lithium use is therefore possible. Current evidence about the association between lithium use and risk of dementia remains mixed, however, as most previous studies focused on the general population rather than on patients with bipolar disorder. Using population-based data from the Taiwan National Health Insurance Research Database, researchers conducted a nested case control study to investigate the potential association of lithium use with dementia, in particular Alzheimer's disease, among the older population. Their research received funding support from Taiwanese institutions. Approximately 2.5 million people composed the study cohort, a total of 63,347 cases of Alzheimer's disease were identified, and two controls for each case were matched. The initial study results indicated an overall elevated Alzheimer's disease risk with lithium use in the general population with an adjusted odds ratio of 1.79. Importantly, though, when the authors restricted the analyses to patients with bipolar disorder in order to minimize potential confounding by indication, lithium was not associated with Alzheimer's disease. On the basis of these results, the authors conclude that dementia is not a complication that should be considered when clinicians treat patients with lithium. Although single clinical predictors have been associated with treatment-resistant depression, they have not proven sufficient for predicting treatment outcome. Researchers' attention has now shifted to interaction-based models, but few multivariate investigations have been performed in treatment-resistant depression. Using data from the European Group for the Study of Resistant Depression, the authors of the present study focused on evaluating the influence of a set of 48 sociodemographic and clinical factors by adopting a machine learning algorithm to predict treatment outcome. Treatment-resistant depression was defined by a Hamilton Depression Rating Scale score of 17 or higher after at least two antidepressant trials of adequate dosage and length. Remission was defined by a Hamilton Depression Rating Scale score less than 8. The machine learning algorithm Random Forest was used to predict treatment outcome. The results suggest that suicidality, early age at onset, and age at first antidepressant treatment, as well as inpatient status and poor response to the first antidepressant administered, increase the risk for treatment-resistant depression and lower the chance of remission. Additionally, melancholia and panic disorder increase the risk for treatment-resistant depression while favorable occupation status and comorbid diabetes and thyroid disorder affect remission. Using all 48 predictors, 
the study demonstrated success rates of 74% for predicting resistance and 85% for remission, thereby exceeding the predictive capabilities of clinicians. The researchers underscore that all predictors are easy to obtain in a clinical setting and express hope that other groups will test their model. Clozapine has been established to be clinically superior to other antipsychotics in treatment-resistant schizophrenia. The issue of clozapine titration has been frequently addressed due to clozapine side effects. However, no study to date has examined immediate versus gradual antipsychotic discontinuation strategies in switching to clozapine. To address this issue, the authors of this study sought to examine the effect of these two discontinuation strategies on clinical outcomes in patients with schizophrenia who were switching to clozapine. Outpatients with schizophrenia who were eligible to switch to clozapine were included in this pilot study, an eight-week, double-blind, randomized, controlled trial supported by a nonprofit charitable foundation. Participants were randomly assigned to immediate or gradual discontinuation. 33 patients were enrolled with 15 patients assigned to the immediate discontinuation group and 18 assigned to the gradual group. In the immediate discontinuation group, prior antipsychotics were discontinued at baseline. In the gradual discontinuation group, prior antipsychotics were reduced by 25% each week. For each group, clozapine was gradually increased to 300 milligrams per day by day 12. While significant improvement in symptoms was observed in both groups after the switch to clozapine, this preliminary study demonstrated no statistically significant differences in efficacy or tolerability between the two groups. However, additional analyses revealed a significant interaction between group and time for mental side effects. The authors note that because of the small sample size, larger scale trials are needed to confirm these results. The anxious distress specifier was one of the new additions to DSM-5 and was meant to acknowledge the clinical significance of anxiety features in major depressive disorder or MDD. While the specifier is of great clinical importance, no evidence exists for its longitudinal predictive validity for clinical outcomes in patients with MDD. The authors of this Janssen-funded article address this knowledge gap. The present study used interview and self-report questionnaire data from 1,000 adults with MDD participating in the Netherlands Study of Depression and Anxiety. 900 persons also participated in a two-year follow-up measurement. The anxious distress specifier was constructed from five self-report items acquired from several anxiety scales that matched the DSM-5 criteria. The researchers then examined how well the specifier predicted two-year chronicity of MDD, time to remission, and subsequent two-year functional disability. For comparison, these analyses were repeated using the presence of anxiety disorders as a predictor. Discriminant performance and convergent validity of the specifier were also assessed. The anxious distress specifier was present in half of the sample. The specifier was a significant predictor of two-year chronicity of MDD, longer time to remission, and poor two-year functional disability. Importantly, it performed better as a predictor of these outcomes than did presence of anxiety disorders. 
Additionally, it discriminated important clinical characteristics, showed convergent validity for anxiety characteristics, and yet overlapped poorly with DSM-IV-based anxiety disorder diagnoses. Based on these results, the authors conclude that the DSM-5 short anxious distress specifier outperforms DSM-IV-based anxiety disorder diagnoses as a longitudinal predictor for clinical outcomes in patients with MDD. Many adults with drug use disorders also smoke cigarettes. However, treatment for tobacco dependence has not typically been included in drug treatment programs despite the fact that nicotine dependence is a substance use disorder that has similar symptoms and characteristics to other drugs of abuse. Some believe that requiring patients to quit cigarette smoking at the same time they are trying to stop using other drugs is too difficult. And while it is suggested that continued nicotine dependence has no impact on long-term outcomes of substance use treatment or abstinence, few studies have empirically examined this issue. In this study, sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, the authors drew data from respondents who completed the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions. Their goal was to ascertain the presence or absence of cigarette smoking at two separate interview time points in patients with diagnosed substance use or dependence. Study results suggest that adult smokers with past illicit substance use disorders who continue smoking are at a greater risk of relapsing to substance use and substance use disorders three years later compared to adults who never smoked. However, the adults with past illicit substance use disorders who quit smoking do not show this increased risk of relapse compared to those who never smoked. The authors conclude that including smoking cessation treatment in substance use treatment may improve long-term treatment outcomes and abstinence from illicit drugs. Since bipolar depression negatively affects quality of life, early prediction of treatment outcome plays a significant role. The authors of the present study conducted a post hoc analysis of the STEP-BD trial to explore which specific depressive symptoms predict subsequent durable recovery in bipolar depressed patients. The study patients were 18 years or older and had experienced a major depressive episode associated with either bipolar 1 or 2 disorder. They were randomly assigned to treatment with a mood-stabilizing agent plus an adjunctive antidepressant drug or placebo. The primary outcome was durable recovery, which was defined as eight consecutive weeks of euthymia. The secondary outcome was treatment-emergent affective switch to mania or hypomania. In 180 participants who took placebo and active drugs, the improvement in loss of self-esteem or loss of energy at week two was significantly associated with higher chances of subsequent durable recovery. When the researchers focused on 91 participants taking active drugs, only the improvement in loss of energy at week two was significantly associated with subsequent durable recovery. As for effective switch, a significant association was observed between the improvement of psychomotor retardation at week two and subsequent manic or hypomanic switch. The authors conclude that while further studies are clearly needed, their findings point to the importance of evaluating individual symptoms in bipolar depression rather than blindly relying on a sum score in rating scales. 
Recently, the cardiac safety of citalopram and escitalopram has raised concerns. Cases of QT interval prolongation and serious ventricular arrhythmias have been reported with these drugs. Consequently, the FDA has required a more careful study of the drug's proarrhythmic potential. The resulting study findings indicated a dose-related QT interval increase for both drugs and a lack of evidence for efficacy of the higher doses. A 60 milligram dose of citalopram prolonged the QT interval by 18 milliseconds. S-citalopram use resulted in an increase of 10 milliseconds. The FDA, in turn, issued a warning against the use of citalopram in doses greater than 40 milligrams. The European Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency issued an advisory for escitalopram recommending a maximum daily dose of 20 milligrams. Given that the ventricular arrhythmias of concern often are lethal, the authors of this article assembled a cohort of high-dose users of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. In a study funded by the National Institutes of Health, they examined the incidence of deaths that were likely to be arrhythmia-related. These included sudden unexpected deaths, sudden cardiac deaths, and all out-of-hospital deaths. The cohort included 54,000 people who were aged 30 to 74 years and were prescribed high doses of SSRIs. No participants had cancer or other life-threatening illnesses. After controlling for an extensive set of psychiatric and somatic comorbidities, the authors found no evidence that the risk of sudden unexpected death, sudden cardiac death, or total out-of-hospital mortality for high-dose citalopram and escitalopram differed significantly from that of comparable doses of fluoxetine, paroxetine, or sertraline. The authors conclude that any proarrhythmic effects of high-dose citalopram and escitalopram were not reflected in a significantly increased risk for deaths commonly related to arrhythmias. Eating disorders are often described as chronic illnesses. Nearly five decades of research suggests that fewer than half of adults with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa will recover. An additional one-third will improve but remain symptomatic, and up to one-fifth will be chronically ill. In fact, some have argued for palliative care management for those with more than a decade of illness. Yet long-term studies with follow-up beyond 20 years are sorely lacking. In the Massachusetts General Hospital, longitudinal study of anorexia and bulimia nervosa, funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers followed a cohort of 246 women with entry diagnoses of anorexia nervosa and bulimia for 20 to 25 years. They interviewed the women regularly for the first nine years of follow-up and re-interviewed 77% of the surviving women at a mean of 22 years to characterize course and long-term recovery. For those with anorexia, while only 31% had recovered at nine years, 63% had recovered by 22 years. For those with bulimia, 68% had recovered at both nine and 22 years. Early symptom remission in anorexia, even for as little as three months, was associated with long-term recovery. While recovery from bulimia happened earlier, recovery from anorexia continued over the long term, arguing against the implementation of palliative care for most individuals with eating disorders. 
The authors conclude that these findings support the likelihood of long-term recovery from eating disorders and challenge the existing notions that these must be chronic illnesses. In observational studies that examine the effects of treatments, patients are not randomized to their respective treatments, which can result in substantial baseline differences between treatment groups. Propensity score matching is one way in which these differences are statistically addressed. This score is the probability that a subject will receive a particular treatment. Subjects in the different treatment groups are then matched based on their scores. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade explains the uses and the limitations of propensity score matching in study designs. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the February Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the February issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com or just enter February into the keyword search. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.